Now, there was another article in the news this week, and uh, scientists, astronomers, believe that they may have found a new planet. Let's see if we can find that. Well, actually, it's an artist's impression. There we go. And they say somewhere out there, beyond Pluto, they're looking for it. It's particularly hard to find, I think. Obviously, that's the reason why they haven't found it properly yet. Uh, There may be this new planet. Hard to find. And the subject for today is peace. And peace, just like that planet, can very often be a hard thing to find. Now, the Greek word for peace is Irene, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that Paul's salutation in his letters very often begin like that when he's writing to the various churches. The Hebrew word for peace, I'm sure you know, is shalom. If you want to greet someone in Israel or say goodbye even, you would say shalom. And it can have various other meanings such as welfare, health, prosperity, completeness, safety, soundness, and so forth. And Paul could write such a salutation to the believers in the churches because they had received this peace from God. Now, the scriptures are clear that outside of God, there can be no spiritual peace. And that denotes that there is a problem with human beings. We are not naturally drawn toward God, but we are at enmity with him. And if you are not at peace, then you are raging a war, raging against all that is good and comes from him. And today, many politicians refer to other religions, one specifically as a religion of peace. But no matter what men might say or refer to as other religions as, it is the scriptures that hold the final word where true peace comes from. Now, back in Paul's day, the Jews believed that merely by being born a descendant of Abraham, you had the right to inherit the kingdom of God, automatic entry into the kingdom of God. It was a hereditary birthright to go to heaven through simple descendancy. And one Jewish source states this, Abraham sits at the gate of hell and does not permit any circumcised Israelite to enter. The Jews also believed that by keeping the law of Moses, they would be justified in the sight of God. We already said earlier on that to be justified is to be in a legal position of righteousness before him. In other words, they believed in a gospel of good works. Now remember that it was not just the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, the Torah, that they thought they could keep, but they warped this with other legalistic commandments and so they didn't just teach the doctrines of God they went even further than that they taught the doctrines of men instead and so therefore they corrupted the true law and they added thousands of laws to the Torah and told men that they were obliged to keep those laws that is what is known as Mishnaic Pharisaism or Judaic Pharisaism let's go back one and This uh, Mishnaic or Pharisaic Judaism was passed on through oral law until it was codified later on after the time of Jesus. And they say that it went right back to the time when uh, God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. They also gave him the oral law just there. And so this myth was created and they believed that it was originally given to Moses by God. And when we read the Gospels, Jesus spends a lot of time challenging this Pharisaic Judaism. He openly healed people on the Sabbath, something that the Pharisees said that they shouldn't or he shouldn't have done. Now, there was no law stating that 
you should not heal on the Sabbath. You were allowed to heal on the Sabbath. But Pharisaic legalism said to Jesus that he wasn't allowed to do such things. And Jesus went out of his way in front of them to heal on the Sabbath, to challenge the way that they believed in the things that they taught. And in short, these Pharisees strove to make their peace with God through the works of their own righteousness. They were performance-based people. And if you didn't meet their standards, then you were not considered as one of the righteous ones. In other words, they were proud, they were arrogant people. And in the book of Romans, of course, the most amazing theological book that, that Paul ever wrote in his outworking of theology, Paul uses the example of Abraham and King David to show that it is not by works that a man is saved or justified, but by grace through faith. And so the Apostle Paul uses the example of Abraham. And uh, he quotes from the book of Genesis. But this is what he says in 4 in Romans chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So in other words, there's not going to be anybody in heaven who says that they're there because they kept these 613 commandments of the law or indeed Pharisaic Judaism. The only people that are going to be in heaven are the ones that have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour. Of course, uh, Abraham uh, received this promise from God before he was even circumcised, which was a sign of obedience that you were a child of the covenant. And Paul always points back to the scriptures for us. Abraham believed in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, a quote from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Now, the second example is from King David, and uh, who did live under the law, of course, yet was an example of someone who had faith in God, and therefore whose sins were covered. Romans chapter 4, verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Now, what about us? The Bible says that God has spoken in various ways and at various times and passed forth to the prophets, through the prophets, to the people, and now he has spoken in these last days to us through his son. And it is his son that asks us to come and believe in him that we might be justified by faith, that we might be declared righteous so that we can accept that free gift from God and enter into a personal relationship with him. It is through this justification that we make our peace with God. And so that is why Paul goes on to state in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Oops, I'm going backwards now. Sorry about that. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we are ever going to find ourselves in this position of peace, then we need to come to the Prince of Peace. We've all read those passages of scripture on our Christmas cards that's just gone. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, unless we are in that position of peace this morning, then we may not particularly understand some of the things that I'm going to go on and say about the subject of peace today. And so often people confuse Jesus with religion. Religion never saved anyone. 
We do not become Christians, do we, that we might conform to a set of rituals or rules or regulations or relics. Go to the old city of Jerusalem and there are plenty of people practicing and doing those things. I remember when I went to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, I went inside dark place, candles, people chanting, lots of images, relics, all this kind of thing, people kissing stones. I felt physically sick. (laughs) I had to leave. I didn't like it in there at all because people were doing religious things, not the things that really the Bible says that we ought to be doing. And that is not the way to God. The way to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way that we can have a personal relationship with him. He is the God who knows and cares about us. And this morning, that is the same for anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. Now, I have to confess that uh, this week I have started a new diet. (laughs) I'm about five days in, and it's working pretty well. So far, I think I've lost about three kilos. (laughs) And uh, the average, apparently, is to learn about half a stone in a week. So as you can see, it's a pretty... Pretty, pretty interesting diet. It's called the CERT diet, S-I-R-T. And you have to drink these disgusting green juices, which I did for the first two days, and after that I couldn't really cope with those anymore, so now I just skip them. But the point is that we, 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 we get nutritious things into our bodies so that we might physically grow, but that we might remain healthily as well. We need to look after ourselves. Some things are difficult to swallow. Some things are difficult to take in. And it is the word of God that convicts us of the way that we are living our life. And sometimes it tells us that maybe we're outside of God's plan, outside of God's will. And we need to conform with God's will if we are ever going to enter in to that time of peace with him. And we need to not just enter into that peace, but we need to practice that peace too. We've already sung about it. We're picking up the actions. The scriptures call it bearing fruit. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, there are various fruits of the Spirit. I went forward a few too many, I think. Let's just stay there for now. And uh, in Galatians 5, 22, there are various fruits of the Spirit. These are in contrast to the works of the flesh. We all have a sinful nature. Bible calls it a sinful nature, it calls us the flesh nature, it calls it the old man. And uh, we were born with this sinful nature, that's why we have a natural bent towards sin. But when we become a believer, we receive a new nature, and it's there which the Holy Spirit resides in us, to lead us into all truth and all righteousness. Now our old man, the sinful nature, wants to drag us back to the past. The new nature enables us to conform to the word of God. But these two natures are warring within us. And we read that there are various things that we can do to act in the old nature, the works of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. Knowing then If we've made our peace with God, as we need to make our peace with God, if indeed you haven't done that yet this morning, we are forgiven and we have eternal life. How do we keep ourselves in that place practically, in the outworkings of our salvation? Our salvation is secure in Christ, but practically now, how do we live out that life of peace when we come up against the heat of temptation or persecution? Or maybe we find ourselves in a really difficult situation. 
In short, how do we produce the fruit of peace in our lives? Because there are times, are there not, that we can be robbed of our peace. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me, given in a particular situation, to get overstressed or overanxious about a particular thing. I worked for an organization called the Open Air Mission for 10 years, and uh, this is going back several years now. And actually, I had to leave because by the end of it, I was so stressed out. And I know what it's like to suffer stress. And how do we cope when we find ourselves in these difficult situations? We need to learn, if we are ever going to get over this lack of peace in our life, that we need to enter into this situation with God where we can find this peace in difficult trials. And Jesus was the prime example of someone who had peace in a storm. Remember the story when the disciples were overwhelmed, they were on the Sea of Galilee and a massive storm was raging and they were all concerned for their lives and they wondered why Jesus was still asleep at the back of the boat. And they awoke him and said, look, aren't you concerned that we're perishing? And Jesus had to rebuke them and say, oh, you of little faith. You know, what are you concerned about? And then he commanded the storm, peace, be still. And the disciples marveled at the fact that this was a man whom the wind and the waves obeyed him. So Jesus was a person who had peace in a storm. So what is the answer to knowing this peace when things get rough? The answer is up there. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. We finally got to it. Be anxious for nothing... But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's just mute. There we go. Now, just this week, I was in the doctor's surgery. Nothing uh, too problematic. But I noticed that there was uh, a sign up there as I was spending time waiting to be called. And uh, there was a sign that said this, stressed, question mark, worried all the time, question mark, low in mood, anxious, question mark. One in four people suffer from these things in their life. Now, I'm not quite sure about that statistic. I tend to think that maybe it might be a little bit more than that. But nevertheless, there are a lot of stressed people out there. And we have to remember that we, as Christians, are in a spiritual war. And we fight on three separate fronts. We fight against the world, everything that is anti-God, this world system. Then we fight against the flesh. We already mentioned that we are in a war with ourselves. And somebody once said that uh, the enemy of self is the greatest enemy that we can face. And lastly, we fight against Satan, the devil, He is man's oldest foe from the Garden of Eden. He knows where to tempt us. He knows where our weaknesses lie. And just like Job, he will throw all that he has against us to make us slip up, blaspheme the name of God, and turn away from him. But the Apostle Paul is interested in addressing anxiousness. Paul knew what it was like to suffer at times, I'm sure, with feeling anxious about situations. Look at everything that he had to face. Yet he knew what the answer was to overcoming these anxious thoughts. And the answer is a simple one. We are to be people of prayer. And it is through prayer that delivers us 
from feeling anxious about any given predicament that we might find ourselves in, whether it's finances, whether it's relationships, our job situation, our college work, paying the bills, whatever it might be. Now, we can be sure that God already knows all about the situation that we find ourselves in, but he asks us to communicate with him about it. After all, a relationship would not be much of a relationship this morning unless it was two-way. God communicates with us, and he expects us to communicate with him, and that is how the relationship is cultivated. And Paul points out three things to begin with. Oops. And it says this, In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And it's in prayer that we make our supplication to him. That means that we bring our concerns and our needs to him. Now, Jesus knew that we would get anxious about many things. That is why he addressed these things in the Sermon on the Mount, when he was talking about the difference between Pharisaic Judaism and their standard of righteousness and the righteousness of the law. And this anxiousness ultimately robs people of their peace with God. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Which you can't make yourself taller. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the heaven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? So to ultimately worry about these basic things demonstrates a lack of faith. Now it is right, of course, to be concerned, but not to get anxious. Because God promises that these basic things, whether it be food, whether it be shelter, whether it be clothes, warmth, all of these basic things will be provided for us. Unless, of course, we live in times of persecution. And there are many of our brothers and sisters across the world that are suffering these things right now. So Jesus finishes by saying this about the subject. Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So in short, what is the remedy for worry and anxiousness? It is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Put God first in all things and seek him. Do not concentrate on earthly things, but concentrate on heavenly things. Don't be concerned about where our next meal is coming from or where we're going to live. And I have to say, as somebody, before I got saved, who went through a short time of homelessness, I know what it's like to go without. But God has promised to provide all of these things for us. So the key is to seek him first, and that means living a life of prayer and trusting he will provide for all of our needs. 
Furthermore, God knows all about the intricate issues and details of our lives, the things that we are facing. But how much better it feels for us that once we have committed the problems that we and others around us face, we have given them to God on a daily basis. And the Bible says when we do these things, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And, you know, I have to ask myself, I'm preaching to myself this morning, when I come up against a difficult situation or a problem, am I worried, am I fretted, am I walking around concerning what's going to happen in this situation or have I given it to God? And how right the hymn writer was when he said, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what peace we needless bear. Oh, what pain we, we needlessly bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So it is only when we live this life of prayer and thanksgiving that we can experience this peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And to surpass all understanding means that it goes beyond a human perspective. It just cannot be worked out. It is the supernatural outworkings of God. Even when facing death, the believer can be at peace knowing that they are going to be soon in the presence of God. In fact, that last hymn that we just sang is my mum's favourite hymn. And I sang that to her with my wife when she was on her deathbed back in August. And as far as I know, she lived all of her life without Jesus. Uh, But we were able to witness to her in those last few days. She died of bile duct cancer at the age of 69. But it is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which will guard our heart and minds in Christ Jesus. Even in these difficult situations. And this is a peace that no religion can bring. Jesus made it clear that we can search high and low for peace in the world, but we will not find it. That was the message that he gave to his disciples in the upper room. I'm going to see if I can go with the flow now on this. There we go. And this is what he said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And whatever this world has to throw at us, ultimately it cannot take away our peace as long as we are in Christ. Just as Jesus would leave this world but send to us the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who would lead us into all truth and righteousness. Now, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons my modern Orthodox Jewish people reject Jesus as the Messiah is because they say that he didn't bring world peace. And they rightly read into the prophets that the prophets say there that when the Messiah comes, there will be a physical kingdom of God, there will be a peace on earth. The wolf shall lay down with the lamb, and the child shall play by the viper's den. I'm sure you know some of those scriptures. But what they fail to understand is that the Old Testament prophets also talked about the fact that the Messiah would come and suffer and die for the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, he would be rejected by his own people. He would die by means of crucifixion, hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. It was written in Psalm 22 by King David. And God would lay the sin of the world upon him. What they fail to understand is that there is only one Messiah and there is two separate comings. (laughs) Jesus came the first time to suffer and die and rise again. And the second time, he is coming to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. And there will be physical peace on this earth. He will fulfill everything 
that the law and the prophets said, not only about the first coming, as he's already done, but in his second coming too. He comes to bring a reign of glory. And until he comes, the scriptures make it clear that we are to be a people of prayer. Are we a people of prayer this morning? Are we people that spend time in devotion with God every day? And this is where one of the great battlefields of the Christian life lies. Satan does not like it when God's people pray, because he knows that something happens. This is why he will do his very level best to divert us onto other things. I know that we can all lead busy lives, and so often I can get up in the morning and I can do various things, and before you know it, I'm stuck in doing those things before I've spent time with God. And maybe we can be struggling in our prayer life, in our personal walk with him. Nobody else in the church might know about this, only you. And you're the only person, ultimately, that can do something about it. Now, it may be that we might need to get somebody else to come and pray with us about this. Or we spend time praying with a prayer partner or our, or, or our partner, whoever it is that we, we want to pray with. We come to church and we pray with others. But so often we can be so busy, even doing Christian things. We can come to church, we can run the youth club, we can make the coffees, we can organize the rota, we can preach the gospel. We can be busy doing many things, but we might be struggling to cultivate a life of prayer with God. Remember the account of the sisters Mary and Martha. It's an absolute classic. And remember that uh, Mary and Martha uh, have Jesus in their home. Let's get the picture up just here. And Mary has sat down at the Lord's feet listening to him, as you do when Jesus comes into your house. But Martha is busy doing many, many things. And Martha comes to Jesus and says, look, Lord, are you not worried that my sister has just sat at your feet and I'm the one who's doing all the serving? And Jesus had to say this, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And you see, the thing is that we can all be doing various different things. We can be doing different stuff. We can even be working, serving the Lord. We can be busy. We can be anxious. But we need to be sat at the feet of Jesus, spending time with him. And how easy it is to get distracted sometimes doing all of the other things instead of cultivating our relationship with God. That means coming out of the hustle and bustle of life and spending personal time with him. Of course, this is born out of our love for Jesus because it's out of love for Christ that we want to spend that time with him that our peace of God may be radiated toward other people. Now, that is prayer and devotion. Now, there is a second thing. There are various things, obviously, that the Bible talks about with peace, but there is one particular other thing that I wanted to bring to our attention because I believe it's very important this morning. I know that you're going to get more about suffering next week. But God also cultivates peace in us through the endurance of suffering. And the Lord allows this suffering in our lives to bring us to a place of peace and holiness. Now the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who were suffering a great deal, mainly as a result of persecution. In fact, they were still quite immature in their faith when they should have moved on to spiritual maturity. They were stuck on the basic principles of the faith rather than progressing in the faith. And for this reason, many of them were thinking of turning away back to the Judaism of the time that they wouldn't be persecuted. But the writer tells them that that is not an option. They should have known that God would discipline them to bring them to full maturity. 
and that God would use suffering that they would go through to bring them into line with his word. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 states this. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And the point that he is making is this, that because we are children of God, if indeed we are children of God, then how much more would our Heavenly Father discipline us if we're walking with him? Because when you think about it in our earthly relationships, we all have parents that disciplined us in a way that they saw fit. Now, that was for our own good and for our own benefit. We may not have been even doing something wrong at the time. Maybe it was just manners at the table or something like that. But the point is that our earthly parents all disciplined us in the way that they thought was fit. They didn't always get it right. (laughs) Sometimes they got it wrong because they're imperfect people. But they did it the way that they thought was best. But God our Father is perfect. And he always disciplines us in a perfect way. And the fact that he disciplines us is proof that we belong to him and he is in the business of desiring to produce spiritual maturity in us. In short, he is transforming us daily into the image and likeness of his son and he will not stop until we become more like Christ in our character. Obviously, he who began that good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus when we go to be with him in glory. But for now, the word of God says this, For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them, that is, our earthly parents, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. So God uses this discipline in our life to draw us near to his presence, that we might turn away from sin and grow in grace in the knowledge of Christ, that he might bring us to that place of spiritual maturity in him. And here is our key verse. It's the last slide. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. It's not a joyful thing to be chastened, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it is never a very joyful experience to go through suffering, but when we come through the other side, the writer of Hebrews says, it produces that peaceable fruit of righteousness in us. And this is our training in righteousness, that God would bring us to the place of godliness, the place of holiness. It's our responsibility to submit to his will, completely submit and turn our life over to him, that he would have the absolute authority in our lives, that he would take the steering wheel, if you like, of our lives, that we would give it over to him and we, he, we would let him lead us and guide us to the place that he wants to take us to. That means we turn from a spirit of rebellion to a spirit of absolute submission. And that's the thing that I want to close on this morning as we look at this subject, this great subject in the Bible of peace. Peace in Christ, the legal place of peace, justification, the practical place of peace. Don't be anxious for anything. In prayer, commit it all to God. Submit to his will, and afterwards it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it.